My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. Well, it's good to be with you guys um, this afternoon. Um, Thank you for being here. Um, These are all the people who have already taken their vacations or couldn't take a vacation for the entirety of July. So um, thank you for being here. Um, It's good to be in God's house with you. Um, It's good to continue with our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The title of today's sermon is Jesus and the Law. Um, And here's the main idea of this passage. Jesus did not come to lower the standard of what it takes to get to heaven. He came to meet it. Jesus did not come to lower the standard of what it takes to get to heaven. He came to meet it. Now, I want you to picture the scene here for just a moment. At this point, for hundreds of years, The Jewish people lived and believed in certain ways. The law of Moses was the backbone of their entire lives. It directed everything they did and everywhere they went. It shaped how they thought about the world around them. Every shred of a Jewish person's life was lived in an effort to conform to the strict standards of the law. And every respected teacher and every honorable rabbi taught essentially the same kinds of things about law-keeping and what that meant. They stuck closely to the traditions handed down to them by the others who came before them. But then this man shows up, this guy named Jesus from Nazareth, a carpenter, and he was different than the others. I mean, sure, rabbis before had claimed to be something special. Many had made radical claims about the Torah before, and they had attempted to buck tradition, but Jesus was not like the others. He performed miracles that no one had ever seen before. He taught like someone who had real authority, and he taught in the ways that he taught in ways that the people had never heard before. If you or I would have been living in Jesus' day, we would have wondered what exactly Jesus was trying to get at. On the one hand, Jesus would, teach, uh, Jesus would teach passages about law-keeping that established standards that even the scribes and Pharisees themselves could not keep. On the other hand, Jesus often pushed back against the traditions that these men promoted as violating the very spirit of the law in the first place. In many ways, the Sermon on the Mount exists to define Jesus' teaching. It clarifies what his message was, what his claims were, and what he meant, and what all of that meant for the future. So in our study thus far, we've seen Jesus preach blessings to the broken, the outcast, and the marginalized, right? That's the Beatitudes. We've seen him preach love and compassion toward the world, salt and light. But the question still stands, what about the law? What about the Torah? What are you going to do with that, Jesus? What about the very thing that Jewish life is built upon? 
To reject the Torah was to reject Judaism entirely. You could not be religiously Jewish and reject the Torah any more than you can have a bicycle with four wheels, right? It's, it's a contradiction. And here Jesus explains himself. He does this by emphasizing what the law was originally designed by God to do. In this way, he redefines what law-keeping actually means. In this passage, Jesus simultaneously exalts the law higher than anyone else had before. That's even possible. And he also rejects the empty religious adherence that the Pharisees and scribes promoted as falling short of it. And when all is said and done, Jesus demonstrates that the law is actually all about him. He is its source, its subject, its definer, and its only perfect adherent. It's a bold and radical claim, even blasphemous if it's untrue. But what we see from Matthew 17, 5, 17 to 48, is that you and I better hope that Jesus is right. Because this man and this message is our only hope for salvation. And it doesn't come through perfection in keeping the law, because guess what? None of us have lived up to that standard. Jesus did not come to lower the standard of what it takes to get to heaven. He came to meet it. And Jesus' words here force us to consider three essential questions. And it's no exaggeration to say that your entire life in this world and your entire eternity hangs on how you answer these three questions. First, do you see your need for righteousness? Do you see your need for righteousness? Jesus makes clear or makes himself clear right out of the gate, his view on the law. This is what he says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is, accompli is accomplished. And iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It's closely connected to the Hebrew letter, uh, yod, which is literally just one tiny little line. The word translated dot in the ESV refers to a tittle or a small mark, which is part of a letter. In English, a tittle is the difference between a C and a G. It's the difference between an O and a Q. One tiny little line. In other words, Jesus is painting a very clear picture here. He is saying that he did not come to remove or relax one letter or even one tiny part of a letter in the law. Not even one dot, not even one tittle. All of the law must be fulfilled. It has to be this way. Traditionally, Jews have accepted that there are 613 laws given in the Torah. 613. When we have the Ten Commandments, they all, all derive from those ten, but 613 in total. Jesus is saying that every single one of them, all 613, must be kept in order for righteousness to be fulfilled. These laws covered every part of life imaginable for Jewish people. There were laws about what kind of food you could eat, what kind of clothes you could wear, what kind of person you could marry, 
what kind of job you could have, what kind of animals you could have on your farm. There were laws about how to handle the dead, the sick, the lame, the outcast, and the foreigner. There were laws about how to conduct your business dealings. There were laws regulating the worship of God in the temple, who could worship there, when they could worship, and what they must do to remain clean so as to worship. There were laws about festivals, holidays, and religious celebrations. There were even laws about war. Who could fight in battle? And one law, which is my favorite, stating that those fighting in a battle must never run away in cowardice. That is actually one of the laws. And what is the import of all of this? The importance of the law is summed up like this in Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Perfect law keeping is the requirement of righteousness before God. All 613. Those who fail to keep God's law, either by breaking his laws or by failing to do everything required in them, is a sinner, a law breaker. And Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now that's a wonderful verse. Who can stand before God, the pure in heart. But the problem is that this doesn't describe any of us. Instead, Isaiah 53, 6 is what describes us. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We have all turned away from the way of God and his law to our own way. We've become laws unto ourselves to do as we please. Jesus makes clear then that he did not come to relax these standards of righteousness before God. And that's why he says this in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It is no good judge who simply decides to call law-breaking virtue, who changes the rules. God's character does not permit him to move the finish line so that you or I can get across it on our own. That's not justice. And that's why Jesus concludes this introduction to his view of the law by saying this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you got to understand something here. We have a very negative view of the scribes and the Pharisees because of some other stuff that Jesus had to say about them in other places. But when Jesus points to the scribes and Pharisees, he's not doing it sarcastically. The scribes and Pharisees were better than anyone at external law-keeping. They even made laws that were more strict than the Torah, so as to avoid even getting close to breaking one of the laws. And yet Jesus says that even they have not earned their place before God. If we are to get to heaven, we must have a righteousness that surpasses that. So I don't know how many of you uh, follow sports at all. Um, if you don't, that's okay. Um, but one of the sports that you either love it or you hate it is baseball, right? Like some of you are like, yeah, baseball is a cool sport, tradition. And some of you are like, baseball is really boring. 
Um, but one of the fascinating things, and one of the things that you love or hate about baseball, um, is kind of related to one of the major storylines in baseball this year. So there's a guy who's an infielder for the Marlins. His name is Luis Arias. And he is chasing um, a, a batting title right now. Now, currently he's hitting 381 at the plate. Um, he's chasing a 400 average this season. That has not happened since, let me check my notes to make sure I tell you right, since 1941. Ted Williams was the last person to hit 400 for a season. All right, so this is like a, a historic, major accomplishment if he's able to do it. And this highlights one of the things that you either love or hate about baseball, which is this. You can fancy it up as much as you want, 400 average, that's four out of 10 at-bats he's getting a hit. If he were to get a hit four out of 10 at-bats this season, it would be a historic season. Not even just a good one. Not even just like above average. It would be the best hitting season since 1941. Now, just for reference, the batting average across all players in Major League Baseball this season is currently 248. That means that if you were to go to a baseball game, all right, let's just make this real, okay? If you were to go to a Yankee game tonight, you would see less than two and a half hits out of every 10 at-bats. Right, now, no wonder some people think the sport is boring. If you don't enjoy watching pitching, then you're probably gonna be bored at a baseball game because 75% of the time, you're not going to see somebody get a base hit. And here's my point, all right? So a professional baseball player who gets, four out of, gets a hit four out of 10 times in a season is accomplishing a historic feat. And as much, of, as, as, much as some of us might hate that in a sport, we often read the Old Testament, we see 613 laws, and we go, yeah, four out of 10? That's not too bad, right? Right? Like, if somebody's hitting 400 of the laws, if the Pharisees were hitting 400, we're like, that's pretty impressive, actually. Right? So we would be impressed. We would say, man, they're doing good. They're doing better than me, right? On average, we're hitting two and a half out of 10. It would be hard enough to even have all 613 memorized, to even know them. By the time you were old enough and had studied enough to have all 613 laws committed to memory, chances are you've already broken most of them because you didn't even know they were laws. And so maybe we would be tempted to think, and some people have this view of Jesus, that he came to lower the bar. That he's like, you know what? Four out of 10, that is good enough. That is good enough to get accepted before God. If you hit 400, that's a good season. That's all you got to aim for. And that's probably what, about what the Pharisees and scribes were doing in their day. But Jesus' point is clear. In order to please God, in order to have a place to stand in the presence of God, to go to heaven, we have to bat a thousand. We have to get a hit every single time, all 613 laws. Nothing short of absolute perfection is good enough to earn a place before God because God is absolutely perfect. Four out of 10 might win a batting title, but it will not get you to heaven. 
He cannot tolerate any sin. And that's why Jesus, if you have any doubts about this, this is why Jesus concludes this entire section with this statement in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You therefore must bat a thousand. Do you see your need for righteousness before God? And as if you're not feeling inadequate enough already, Jesus goes on, right? We get this long section where Jesus establishes a standard of law keeping that's actually far stricter and far more difficult than even the scribes and Pharisees could invent on their own. This is because Jesus is essentially saying that you can perfectly keep the letter of the law externally. You can do everything right outwardly and yet still break every single one of them and stand condemned as a sinner in your heart. The law is not aimed just at what you do. It's aimed at who you are on the inside. It's aimed at what you love. It's aimed at your heart. And that leads to the second question. Do you see your lack of righteousness? Do you see your lack of righteousness? Jesus then goes on to define what true righteousness, what true law keeping means. And in reading the Old Testament now, looking back, knowing what we know, it shouldn't be shocking really, or revolutionary what Jesus has to say here. But what Jesus says about the law completely reframed the entire conversation about law keeping in his day. It was radical. It was profound. It broke hundreds of years of tradition and it left every single person listening, including the most religious, including those scribes and Pharisees who were probably standing somewhere on the outside watching all this happen. It left even them condemned as lawbreakers. This section is framed around five, you have heard it said, but I say statements. And using that phrase, Jesus does two remarkable things. First, he corrects, he redefines, and he reframes the entire tradition around the Torah. He says, I know you think this is what law keeping is, and this is what the law is about, but this is what it's actually about. That's pretty profound. And second, even more than that, he sets himself up as the final authority on what the law actually is and what it means. Now, don't miss this. It was highly uncommon, borderline blasphemous for a rabbi to speak this way. It's, it's like this. It's like writing an academic paper. If you wanted to prove a point, what do you have to do? You have to quote somebody who's an expert. You have to cite your sources and say, well, this is true because so-and-so and their research found this, this, and this to be true. You, and rabbis did the same thing. You would quote or cite a past or highly revered teacher on the subject. And you would say, well, so-and-so said this, and that is why we teach and live this way. But here Jesus cites himself as the only necessary source of information. In essence, he's implying that he actually wrote the law and therefore does not have any other higher authority to appeal to. He is the highest authority. He says, but I say, and he does not refer to anyone else to prove his point. There are five statements here, five sections. You have heard it said, but I say statements. And there's one kind of sub point that attaches to one. 
Uh, we don't have time to examine each of them in detail. Each section could be its own sermon. And I would encourage you this week to just go through and study each of these sections to see what exactly Jesus is saying. But unfortunately, like, I, this is a limited amount of time here, so we can't go in detail. I just want to give you a broad overview of each of the five sections and the claim that Jesus is making, just so we can let that sink in. All right, the first section is in verses 21 to 26, and Jesus says this, right? So he's referring to the law and murder. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, the one who has contempt is already a murderer. Right? You don't have to buy a gun and shoot someone. You don't have to go get a knife. If you have contempt and ill will, wishing ill on your brother, on a fellow person, it's as if you've already murdered them in your heart. And God will count you as a murderer. <laughs> second, second one. In verses 27 to 30, Jesus says the one who looks lustfully is already an adulterer. And in a subsection to this, and this is, he follows that with, uh, you know, rip your eye out, cut your hand off. It's better to do that. And he follows that with this little section in verses 31 to 32. I don't want to gloss over this because you might read that and go, that feels random. But you should know it was a common practice in Jesus' day. Common, the common tradition and teaching was that a man could basically divorce his wife for any reason. Right? So they interpreted the law on this so broadly that basically anything that a man found objectionable in his wife, he could just say, here's your divorce certificate, go away. And Jesus is actually condemning that practice and saying, no, that is not the way God intended to give the divorce as an, as an option, right? Like what he's saying is you, can, you should only divorce your wife if she commits adultery on you, right? If you have just cause to divorce her, not for any reason whatsoever. So it's helpful that Jesus makes that critique and he's pushing back against what the Pharisees would do often as a common practice. Then in the third section, this is verses 33 to 37, Jesus says the one whose words are unreliable is already a liar. Now, Jesus is not saying, and, and be careful how you read this. He's not saying that in every single context, you should never, ever take an oath, right? So like, if you go to court, you should not put your hand on the Bible. You should not raise your right hand. You should not swear that you're telling the whole truth. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's, he's pushing against another common practice, which is actually very common in our day too, where people will say, I swear, I swear I'm going to do it, right? And a lot of people, right, so we as religious people, we probably won't say, I swear to God. But a lot of people that you know, ironically, who maybe or maybe don't believe in God, that's a common thing that they'll say. Oh, I swear to God I'm going to do that. Or I swear to God I didn't do that. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you have made your word so diluted that you have to swear for the basic common things in your day to be true, you're already a liar, right? Like your word is not trustworthy, right? Making an oath should be only for the most serious situations. But your word should be so reliable that when you say something, you don't have to swear on anything. People will know you're going to do it. 
So those are the three negatives. And then Jesus turns to two other positive commands, right? Which this would be like not doing something we should do. Um, so the fourth one is in verses 38 to 42. The one who is unmerciful does not honor God. And he talks about, um, right, if somebody strikes you, let them strike the other cheek. Two, go the second mile. All of these kinds of principles. Why? Because God has been merciful to us. If we do not display mercy to others, then it's a sign we have not experienced the mercy of God upon ourselves. And then the last one um, in verses 43 to 47, the one who is unloving, even toward their enemy. Another pushing back against another cultural thing here. The one who is unloving does not reflect God. Why? Because God loves his enemy. Do you know how we know that? We all were his enemy at one time, and he loved us. Therefore, we must also love our enemies. And here's the summary of what this is showing us. Does God's law exist just to regulate behavior? Right? That's the common view that someone might have had. You might, you might have looked at the tradition and been tempted to think that. But Jesus is saying definitively no. It is aimed at whole heart, whole life, holiness, and love for God in our heart. Now, to be clear, to be abundantly clear, Jesus is not saying, well, since you did it in your heart and you're guilty of it anyway, you might as well just follow through and do the thing you want to do. That's not the point that Jesus is making. Don't walk away from here going, well, if I thought it, you know, it's like that. It's like those people who said, well, I was thinking it, so I just thought I should say it. It's like, well, no, um, that's not wise, right? You were thinking it. You shouldn't have thought it, but you definitely shouldn't have gone ahead and said it, right? That doesn't make it better. Um, so that's not the point that Jesus is making. Jesus isn't talking about consequences here, right? The social and relational consequences, for example, of hatred versus murdering someone are vastly different, right? You don't go to jail for hating someone. So the, the consequences are different. But the point is this. The point is that you cannot harbor anger and hatred in your heart and then call yourself holy because you don't act on it outwardly. God sees the heart and he judges us by what he finds there. The desires and inclinations of our heart are just as real as the actions of our body. And I think we can all take a moment here and admit that we are all guilty in all of these areas. Right, do you feel, I trust you do, right? Like the intensity and the offensiveness of what Jesus' message is here. Jesus just called all of us murderous, lying adulterers who dishonor God in how we treat other people. All of us. And the question that follows that is this. If we are all murderous, lying adulterers who dishonor God in how we treat others, does that sound like the kind of person that the Father would let into heaven one day? Does that sound like a lawkeeper? Does that sound like someone who's honored God? No. So I, I grew up in a family, um, and some of you are going to resonate with this. Uh, I grew up in a family where 
we really didn't believe in going to the doctor. That was not something we did. Okay, so if you had like a broken arm, if, if the bone wasn't like sticking out, or if you weren't running like 105 fever for five straight days, or if, you know, like you weren't bleeding and you, we couldn't stop it, like we did not go to the doctor. It's just not something that we did. All right, so unless you're like on your deathbed, like that's when we would be like, okay, you should probably go to the doctor now. Now, some of you grew up in homes like that, I know, and you're like, yeah, that's the way my mom was too. And some of you are like, no, every time you sneezed, it's like, we gotta go to the ER right now. You're sick, right? There's, and it seems like there's just no in-between. Like, you're, you're one or the other. Um, but my family was definitely the former. And so, for my entire life, um, you know, I have watched my dad. And he's, you know, I, he, my dad was older when I was born. And so, um, my dad is much, like we were talking about this earlier, my parents are, are much older than Savannah's parents, even though we're around the same age. Um, and so, I watched my dad he was always active. Like, he was always out mowing the yard. He was always playing sports. Like, we would go and play tennis. We would go and do all these other things. Like, my dad was not the kind of person who would just sit around and do nothing all the time. He was always pretty healthy. Like, he took pretty good care of himself, you know. Um, didn't go to the doctor, because none of us did. But he tried to take care of himself so that he wouldn't have to. But when I was in high school, um, we started to notice that my dad was acting weird that he just seemed to like be tired all the time. Um, I can remember one time we were out playing tennis, which we always did, like this was not an uncommon thing. Like I'd played tennis with my dad all the time and he was like about to pass out and he was breathing so heavily. Um, and it was just kind of weird. And at first my dad's like, oh, you know, I'm just getting older, like I'm breaking down, you know? Um, but it just seemed like it happened so fast that it didn't seem natural. And uh, I remember what the, the, like, the last straw was, because it, it it's starting to get to, get to a point where even, even my mom is like, hey, I think you should maybe go see a doctor. Like, something's not right. And of course, my dad's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine, right? Like, as dads always do. Like, I'm, I don't need the doctor. What are they going to tell me? They're going to tell me I'm old. Why do I need to go there? And so it even got to a point where my mom was like, okay, look, I think you need to go to the doctor. Well, I remember one night very vividly that my dad took the trash out and he was gonna walk the trash can to the end of the driveway. This was a every week routine. And I just remember my dad coming in after that and like he was breathing so heavy and he was like about to pass out. Like he collapsed on the couch and he just like looked like he was gonna pass out. And that's when we're like, okay, tomorrow you have to go to the doctor. Well, come to find out, my dad actually had a very severe heart condition. Um, and he, he ended up having to have open heart surgery, quintuple bypass, all five of his major arteries were clogged, including his widow maker. And the doctor was like, I don't even know how you're alive right now because you should have had a heart attack by now. Like it was that bad. He was on the brink of having a fatal heart attack for months, months. And he was just going about his life like normal. And my point in telling you this story is this, right? There, there might be someone who's sitting there right now hearing all that Jesus is saying and you're telling yourself, okay, but isn't that a little bit dramatic, Jesus? Like, doesn't that seem like a, a little bit extreme? Like, you're really telling me I'm, I'm all of these things? Like, 
I don't think it's that bad. Why? Because we're so prone. We're so prone to downplay our sin, to minimize it, to gloss over all of the heart issues we have. And Jesus is saying, his message is clear. You have a fatal heart condition. This will kill you for all eternity if you don't address it. That's the standard of God's expectations for us. He rightfully demands not merely external behavior modification. We fall into that trap to think, well, if I just stop doing this and I start doing this, then everything's going to be okay. But he's not aimed just at behavior modification. He's aimed at love, affection, obedience, born out of a desire to please him. And not a single one of us in this room have lived up to the standards that Jesus is describing here. In fact, I would venture to guess we all have broken all of them. Jesus gave us five. There are 600 and what my math is bad here, 608 more laws that he could have addressed. He just addressed five and he condemned all of us in the room. And no matter how good we might look on the outside, no matter how many things we are able to not do for God, we have a heart condition. That we have a heart that loves, God, that loves God. No, I wish it did. We have a heart that loves sin and longs for it. And the essence of Jesus' teaching is this. We are all lawbreakers. But of course for him, he's not putting it in plural. You is what he's saying to us. You are all lawbreakers. And so my question is this. Where might you be downplaying sin in your life right now? Where might you be justifying, minimizing? What's that thing that you go, is it really that bad? Don't settle for cheap behavior modification and shallow appearances of holiness to please others. Take my word for it. That will not bring you the joy and satisfaction that the gospel promises. That only comes when we seek after our heart, fully devoted to Christ, fully fixed on him and satisfied in him. And Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the 17th, 18th century, if I can get my years right, said this, the smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against God. The smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against God. And that's the essence of what Jesus is saying to us here. Do you see your lack of righteousness? And that brings us then to the third question. Um, it's been all bad news up to this point, right? So you're probably like, why, why did I come to church today? Um, but that brings us to the third question. And the third question is this. Do you see your hope for redemption? Jesus isn't just giving us bad news, right? Jesus doesn't just say, you're all lawbreakers. All right, bye. No, he... he he does something about it. You'll notice that we skipped over, actually, in our discussion, we skipped over the most important verse in the entire passage. Actually, the theme statement for the entire passage. Without this verse, the whole section is bad news. If Jesus didn't tell us this part, 
the rest of it, it's just all downhill. Like, there's no getting out of it. Jesus is telling us that we need to have a righteousness that we do not and cannot have to get to heaven. Bad news. He's telling us that we're all murderers, adulterers, liars, and blasphemers. Bad news. We're all lawbreakers. We're unworthy to be in God's presence, and none of us can go to heaven in that state. Ah, but Jesus actually begins the whole discourse with hope. In verse 17, and I saved it for the end, right? So we're going to circle all the way back to the beginning. He said this. This is how he began this discussion. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus clarifies that he did not come to abolish, to let down, to lower, to relax anything in the Old Testament about law keeping or what righteousness before God means. He didn't come to enforce it either. In John 3, what did, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Do you remember? For the, he did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus could have come to judge, but he didn't. He came to fulfill. He came to do it. Jesus came to be the righteous one. Jesus came to keep all 613 laws perfectly. And he did so because we cannot do it on our own. And yes, he's urging his followers, as we just said, to strive after holiness. But he does not demand that they do so in an effort to earn righteousness before God. We can't do that. That ship has sailed. We're already guilty. We've already committed cosmic treason against God, and we continue to do so in our heart and in our actions every single day. If it depends on our law-keeping, Jesus is clear that we have no hope. But praise God for Matthew 5, 17. Because our righteous status before God doesn't depend on our law-keeping. It depends on his. He is the one who perfectly kept the entirety of the law down to the tittle of each letter. He is the one who earned right standing before God. He is the one who loved and honored God fully in everything. And our only hope of being counted righteous before God is if someone else who is righteous stands in our place. I forgot to bring the trash can up here. <laughs> Oh, Haley's going to get it. Great. Because I want to illustrate something for you. Um, I, brought, I brought images, okay? I want to illustrate something for you about what this means. So my lovely wife is going to bring this trash can up here. Okay. So this picture is very simple. Thank you. Thank you, Haley, for that. Okay. This is a trash bag. All right? It's a trash bag. Now, I want you to just imagine with me for a second that you walk into our living room and we just, where's your trash? Oh, it's right there in the corner. Yeah, it's just that bag, right? Like you, that would be weird, I think, right? This is a trash, it's ugly, it's smelly, 
It's unpleasant, right? It's a trash bag. Nobody is going to just throw this trash bag into the corner of the room and leave it sitting there. If I walked in, and if you have that, look, I'm not judging, okay? All right, this is New York. We're all, we're all poor here, okay? So it's fine. But I'm just saying, if you do that, you probably want a trash can. This is a trash can, okay? Now, a trash can exists for one purpose, actually, so that you cannot see and smell a trash bag. None of us would have a trash can in our home if we didn't have trash and a trash bag that we needed to put it in. Now, I think you can see where I'm going with this, maybe. This right here, this is our sin. It's a trash bag, okay? <laughs> it's unpleasant to look at. It's unpleasant to smell. It's just generally unpleasant. Now, God is not going to just take a trash bag and just, hey, welcome to heaven. There's our trash, right? Right? Like, he can't, he can't even, it, it goes further than that. He can't even tolerate the presence of our sin before him. He doesn't even have a trash can, right? Like, there is no garbage in heaven. And so what we need is we have a problem because our heart is full of this. We all see that now. But what happens when God looks at us? He sees our trash. He sees our murderous thoughts, our adulterous thoughts. He sees our dishonor and unloving way we treat others. He sees our blasphemies. He sees all that garbage that we have. And if he looks at us in judgment, how is he going to let this trash bag go with you into heaven? He can't do it. And so, what we need is a trash can. Right? Because if I put this trash bag in the trash can, like so, now obviously, it's not a perfect analogy, okay? This trash can doesn't have a lid. But you get the picture, which is, now you see what? You don't see my trash anymore. You don't see an ugly black trash bag full of empty cups that maybe smells weird. No, you see the trash can. And this is the image of what Christ has done for us. That Christ stands before us. This is the image of being clothed in Christ, covered with Christ, so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin and the shame, the dishonor and the blasphemy that you've committed against him. Instead, he sees Christ. Not a perfect analogy, okay? And if you walk out of here and go, Jesus is my trash can, right? That's, that is not the next worship hit, okay? Let me just tell you right now. But the image is clear enough, isn't it? That we need something to stand between us. To stand between us and God. And this is what Christ has done. But here's the big difference between Christ and a trash can. Is that he doesn't just leave the trash in there. 
He doesn't just leave our hearts trashy, okay? He cleans us up by giving us the Holy Spirit so that we can examine ourselves for sin. We can kill its power in our lives. We can live out our salvation in a way that's pleasing to God, even if we no longer have to earn our place before him. He cleans the trash out of our heart. We no longer have to live in the bondage, shame, and destruction of our sin because of what Christ has done. He stands between us and God. So that if you are in Christ, when you stand before God one day in judgment, and he says to you, I don't know if he'll say this to you, but maybe he will. He says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Well, I'm not as trashy as some other people. <laughs> right? No. The only hope that we have is for God to look at us and see the perfection of Christ. The one who kept the law in our place. This is the hope of salvation that we have. That we trust in Christ to be the one who stands between us. Christ did not just die to remove the penalty of our sin. He also lived to earn the perfection of righteousness so that we can go to heaven if we've trusted in him as the one who stands between us. So here's the main idea. You all are going to walk away with the trash can in your mind. Jesus did not come to lower the standard of what it takes to get to heaven. He came to meet it. Do you see your hope for redemption? It's found in Christ and in him alone. And the only thing we can do is hide ourselves in him. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.